Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys take a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil. Where? A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Will we ever see more of this mysterious assassin? Have we ever seen more of this mysterious assassin? And how's Scribe doing these days? What a totally normal non sequitur. The closest equivalent I've found to the Imperial Court is the act of shoving your hand in a bag that could be full of jewels, but is, most of the time, Full of razor blades. Extract from the personal memoirs of Dread Empress Maleficent, the second. In today's chapter, Catherine is moving up in the world, or at least up in the altitude. She's at the 200th level of the tower to meet with, to treat with, to greet the Dread Empress. She is unaccompanied and there's just some ragged, wretched girl hanging out in the tower. Catherine, I'm not talking about anyone else. And over the course of the chapter, she meets with Militia, and that is the whole thing. It's a good chapter, but in summary, it's not all that much. Yeah, we get a lot of interesting information in this chapter. We get three pretty important characters chatting for most of it, uh, but... Yes, the entire chapter is one conversation between those three people. Um, we get a, a little bit of uh, set dressing first, though, uh, because Kat is, unsurprisingly, given she's meeting with the Dread Empress, in the tower, and uh, pretty pretty high up in the tower this time. I read the first words of the chapter. The 200th level of the tower was surprisingly, well, not horrifying. And my first thought was, 200 levels? Wow! That's clearly a fantasy thing, because outside of modern engineering, how could you ever achieve that height? But I don't know how buildings work. Yes, I lived in Manhattan for a number of years, but, you know, how tall is a building even? I don't know. A, a billion? A thousand? Twenty-three? It's like if you ask me how many brain cells there are in a human being. I don't know. Some kind of alien. I could go anywhere. Same thing here. How many levels are in, say, the Burj Khalifa? Turns out, the Burj Khalifa itself, the highest tower in the world, 
has 154 floors plus, according to Wikipedia, nine maintenance. I presume that means floors. Which makes the tower bigger than the Burj Khalifa. Which makes sense. But oh, sure, yeah. Also, perspective, man. And woman. And happy Pride Month. All those who transcend or rebuke that restrictive binary. But Catherine is hanging out alone in an antechamber, a boudoir, if you will. Catherine will. And she is left alone to look at the walls, which are decorated. There's a relief. And as she's looking at this relief, she denies herself relief because there is a carafe of what looks like good leeson wine. But, you know, it might be poisoned. And I think this is interesting on two fronts. The first of all, Catherine looks at wine and says, it looks like good wine. I am not an adept of vinology. I'm not a viticulturalist. But can you at a glance identify the provenance of wine? Maybe it has, maybe Leeson wine has a particular color that you don't see anywhere else. And the good just means that it is Leeson rather than that it's a particular quality we stepped into the Stormlight Archives, and she sees good purple wine. Right, right. <laughs> she, she can I tell can. whether the, the wine is for men or women by glancing at it. But I think it's interesting that apparently, more on this later, Catherine still doesn't know the trick of, eh, just drink it. If it's bad, you can burn it out, unless it's like super special bad. But frankly, where she is right now, if someone's trying to super special bad poison her, she's going to be dead by the end of the hour. That's, yeah, the, that is interesting that she hesitates here and, you know, maybe she is concerned about uh, super special bad poison. But in the very next chapter, she demonstrates she has this trick down. No spoilers, except that is a spoiler. Uh, oh, she demonstrates later this chapter. Is it this chapter? Or she mentions her ability oh. this chapter. Okay, she demonstrates next chapter. Which is just a quick turnaround on her. I, I suppose if you're feeling uncomfortable you take the advantages afforded to you. I cannot stand to fly unless I am well psychopharmaceuticaled, but actually I can barely stand it with psychopharmaceuticals. Yet, when I am on a flight, I recognize I am powerless. If the plane suddenly falls out of the air the way I am certain it will, I, that's it for me. Bye. But I still take actions as though there were a chance. I sometimes consider, how free are my feet? It won't matter. How uh, close am I to an exit? Doesn't matter. If, when the plane falls out of the sky the way I'm convinced it will, it will crash into the ground faster than the speed of sound. Because planes break the sound barrier when they fall, it feels like. I've decided. I think that checks out, yeah. However, even in a country without good rail, compared to, say, Europe, if you're going between two destinations anywhere near a city with an Amtrak stop and you're not in a hurry, it's a pretty comfortable way to travel. I recommend it to all the Americans listening. And anyone visiting the country, please be safe. Yeah. Speaking of being safe, you could really use someone helping you out. <laughs> you could. Uh, Kat uh, mentions uh, Hockham here is getting her armor ready for this trip. You know, she's wearing her armor because, of course, she is. She's a she's the squire. But it's... Uh, nice and polished thanks to Hawkram. and cat refers to him as her minion uh and 
you know, it's fine. Kat likes that lingo. She uses it a few times throughout the series, but it's very early on for her to be leaning that hard into her villain status that she's already referring to her subordinates in her her legion as her minions. Uh, it's a it's a pretty loaded term, and uh, you know, good for Kat. Uh- you're just forgetting this is Prace has actually the official designation. Oh my god. In bad, the Legion bad. Handbook. Of course. Uh but also I stepping would not in be shocked. <laughs> I pro you're right. I mean, it's fair. Also stepping into that though, she is uh she's wearing a cloak now, which great. Glad to see that. That's part of Kat's whole thing. Um but she complains that it makes her feel as though she's doing everything in an overly theatrical way. And uh Oh no! Yeah, it's like she doesn't know who she is. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's uh, she's getting used to the cloak. It quickly becomes part of her image. Uh, but theater is a very important part of being a successful villain, and uh, Kat figures that out eventually. She's she's just a baby right now. I realize it technically doesn't say this in the text, but between the lines, it's very clear that as Catherine is lamenting how theatrical it is. She is draping herself over one of the fainting couches in the antechamber, placing a hand limply on her forehead, the other flowing off of the cushion onto the floor, hair cascading down. Right, just... Oh. That, that's plain. I thought it was implied that she was she found the crosswind at this level of the tower and was standing sort of parallel to it so that her when she's looking to the left her hair is fluttering behind her and she has her hand prominently placed on the pommel of her sword and she you know just cutting a nice silhouette for when Ime walks in hmm you know i can see that read those are the only two ways that could be interpreted but mm, yeah Catherine is turning into a monster but the real monster is black but the real monstrosity of black is that he is a likable monster. <laughs> and uh, as as Kat is thinking about her teacher here, and you know, this likable monster of the very worst kind, uh, she kind of edges adjacent to the series title. She says the more I she says, the more I spent let me try that again. She says, the longer I spent with my teacher, the more the way he did things seemed reasonable. And that terrified me more than anything else. Yeah. I, we're reading a series called The Practical Guide to Evil, and Kat's guide into evil is Black, and he's a very practical man. He knows the rules, and he uses them. He doesn't tend to do things for his own, I don't know, vanity. Uh, and his methods are incredibly effective, uh, as men- is mentioned a couple of times in this chapter alone. And Catherine concludes, I can like him and still consider him my enemy. And that is a theme in this series. Because even from an in-universe perspective, not just as readers where we get to enjoy terrible, terrible people and things, but even diegetically, these characters are likable. They're admirable or they're funny or cool or what have you. And look at all of the enemies Catherine has over the course of the books. Militia is fantastically sharp. Hot. Yeah. Uh, she's looking sharp. Right. Juniper is her enemy at one point, and Juniper is a very honorable foe. Uh, we see Cordelia set up as an enemy, and I mean, 
listen to the episode before last. Tyrant, <laughs> yep, not militia tyrant, but Kairos is honestly just unbelievably. He's a not even just funny. He's a good time of a person. Also a nightmare human being, um, mm-hmm. truly wretched and evil creature. But when Catherine plays Chatrange, well, when Catherine plays at playing Chatrange with him, you know they're both having fun with the comicalicity, even though they're also actively maneuvering against each other. The Dead King, Catherine establishes a rapport with him. They have conversations they are absolutely hated foes but there are positive elements to their relationship aquia i mean she can like her and still consider her her enemy oh english pronouns are unfortunate she can like her and still consider her her enemy good job uh <laughs> i mean you haven't even, i was gonna say you haven't even mentioned all of the calamities yet who Cat adores. I mean, not. I mean, Black is obviously mentioned in the chapter, yeah. but all of the calamities fall into this. I mean, they're all phenomenal, except maybe Ranger. Uh, you, you gotta admit that Assassin doesn't really do much. But he's likable. He's a cutie. Well, yeah. I think outside of most of the Fae she competes against, which barely and, count. Yeah, and the really immediately crushed ones, like the rapists and chapter one are wholly without merit and mm-hmm. also wholly without uh screen time after the chapter right they're they are an object for catherine's ascension they're they're the same they fulfill the same function as the fey they're a story element for cats to overcome not a character but every other foe is pretty like uh there's two exceptions saint of swords and Billy. I'm going to cut the pause, but I'm admitting it here so that our listenership knows there was just a long one. But the reason I hesitate is simply, is there anyone to add to that list? That's what I'm trying to think, because Saint of Swords is, like, she's like the Grilgrim in that love to hate her. She's, Mm -hmm. you know, actually a fun character. Billy is just irredeemable. Billy's Uh, irredeemable, but the Saint of Swords, diegetically has nothing going for her from Catherine's oh, perspective. True. She, okay. If we're talking Tariq purely... Is a is a good time when he's not the worst. He's an amazing character, and that makes him likable. Sure. If we're talking purely diegetically, then yes. The Saint of Swords is awful. Billy's still awful. Uh, but outside of that, I don't know. Because we can't... I really think we can't count the Fae, as I've said. They, they don't... They're not characters in the same way. They're, Even well, they're char- mm-hmm. they're characters in an extra way. They're they're double. They're characters within the story. Like diegetically, they're characters. They're cardboard cutouts of a picture of a cardboard cutout. <laughs> they're cardboard cutouts of a picture of a computer screen. Oh, showing a cardboard cutout. They're they're cardboard cutouts showing a picture of a shadow on a cape wall. I really hope we lean into the allegory of the cave when we get to the fae. We really should. Yeah, I, I can't think of any other because, like, I, I'm going through like the White Knight, obviously amazing, uh, and he's not really an enemy for that long. I, I mean, the Drow seem terrible, but then Rumena. There, I mean, every Drow that gets actual screen time is fantastic. Uh, oh, uh, 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 the Mirror Knight is not particularly likable, but he's also not important enough to really be worth diving into at this stage. I don't think he also has the most attractive trait any man can have. His head breaks gates. 
I was actually referring to the lack of anything in the head, but sure. <laughs> he does have that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's not even even as a an antagonist, he's not at the level of anybody else we've been discussing so far. He's not a primary oh. antagonist for Cat at any stage. He's he just represents some problems. Now speaking of primary antagonists, move up a level. Well, I don't is she likable? I that's the thing. I, I've been I'm like borderline the entire series on how much I actually like her, like at the per, the person, not the character. The character's you know great, obviously. If if you don't like if you don't like the bar, then you don't like the series. I think. <laughs> uh, but as as far as like the character itself, I don't know. She's she's kind of annoying. But frankly, if I knew Cat in real life, I'd probably find her a little bit annoying. So that's hardly a good metric here. Yes, but Cat is canonically the worst. Right, and that's what I'm saying. Is is Bard also canonically the worst? Because I think so. Hmm. She's the butt of a joke because she's a Bard, and then once people realize what she is, they hate her for that reason. There's never really a chance for her to be a person, which I think is fine. She shouldn't be. That's not her position in reality. <laughs> to you know, to be just be like a guy, you know. Oh, if anyone listening has any thoughts, please write in and. Tell them to us. And just to, you know, bring this around, where should they write in if they have any thoughts? Well, you can find us on the email at the long price, at the Twitter at the long price, on the Reddit under the posts where you see it say podcast guys talking to Reddit Gratum. Mm-hmm. On the Discord under Fanworks when you see a post about podcast guys talking to Reddit Gratta. Or Carrier Pigeon. You know what? Just Give a, one of us a ring. You can call us up if you find out our phone numbers. That'd be great. I'd prefer you don't find the phone numbers, but if you do, please call and stay on the line for a while while we um, send you a prize. Yeah, maybe let's rephrase that. Don't find the numbers. If you happen to purely accidentally stumble on one of our numbers somehow, yeah, go for it, I guess. You already know all the numbers in our numbers. Actually, there's one other way you could contact us, and that's through our Patreon. There's a messaging area on there so you know just a just a thought hmm. i have no idea how anything works that's fine computers do it for us oh and if you can psychically contact us oh actually yeah that'd be really cool i promise not to tell the cia if anyone asks the lsd and the tap water did nothing and i i don't know what 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 do you want me to do i'll join your team what's up <laughs> what cat uh Cat <laughs> spent some time looking at this relief and is uh, thereby introduced to Ime, who is uh, a representative of Militia, who goes up and gives Cat a little context on the relief. It's about the Fourth Crusade. Um, and then offers a very nice understatement to explain why Militia is not meeting with Cat yet. Uh, she says that the Lies Rebellion has complicated tax collection in callow for the year uh yep a major uprising of some of your very important cities and a lot of people within them i would imagine that would mess with tax collection a little bit Eme. thank you but the uh one other thing in this explanation excuse maybe eh, excuse is too weak a term for militia um in this explanation of why the dread empress is going to be late for the meeting with cat uh Ime refers to her as militia no no titles no honorifics just militia um which 
we don't really see outside of like literally black uh, in this series, and you know maybe Cat when she's feeling snarky. Uh, so before we know who this person is who's walked up and started talking to Cat, she kind of just flexes a little bit and reveals how important and powerful she is by referring to the Dread Empress by you know her imperial name, but still her name only. I mean, and that's really remarkable. We there are very few who would dare treat her that way, especially knowing how far her tendrils could reach can reach. I mean, imagine if her spy mistress found out that her spy mistress was talking that way. <laughs> yeah. But being a spy mistress is a game of sleight of hand and careful manipulation. And he may actually demonstrate it in a very simple way. Her first conversation, her first chatting with Catherine before this talking about the tax situation was an exchange of information. It was official. It's not chatting. But the first chat to her was, it's not poisoned, by the way, if you were wondering. And she is helpful, but she also works immediately to disempower Catherine openly. A clear, I know you don't understand how things are working here. I know you're not prepared. And, hey, I'm going to help you, which puts me in a position of power. It's nothing major. It. Really, it doesn't matter, but it shows her finesse. A finesse that allows her to work on a close diplomatic and intelligence level with, you know, the Dread Empress Militia. Also, at a level that sees her being able to pretty comfortably compare herself to Scribe at one point this chapter. So, yeah, Ime is pretty good at her job, I would say. And, yeah, like you said... This little play right here may not seem like much, but that's the kind of thing that Pat, I think, uh, doesn't catch all of the time at this stage in her career, and but that is always going on with pricey nobility or equivalent. You know, I don't know if Ime is actually noble. Hard to say, uh, but it's it's always going on. So being so finding those moments, it really adds to the character of the of the people of the ruling class of Prace in a, in a pretty great way. Like it's not cat explicitly says that's what's going on. A lot of times when she's, t- you know, she doesn't always catch everything, but she says that's what's going on, but to see it shown rather than said in moments like this, it, it's, it's nice. A quick aside, Catherine worries or Catherine indicates she was worried that Ime might be a heavily disguised version of militia, but decides that was becoming more unlikely by the moment. Which I think we both know means it was becoming more likely by the moment. (laughs) But she decides to play along and then notes there's a reason Black taught me the name trick to burn basic poisons out of my system. This was discussed before. Now that which was heralded has come to pass. What do you know of wine? It comes from grapes. Okay, thank you. I have never, I don't know, recreationally drunk wine outside of sips while cooking and religious ritual i haven't engaged with it so honestly this question might be just an obviously yeah duh but she takes a sip and allows the quote sweet musky taste to fill my mouth is muskiness a wine thing uh i also haven't really (laughs) engaged with wine i have no idea (laughs) 
those of you who know about wine, I'd, I just kind of want to know. And those of you who are experts in wine, I'm under the impression your field is fake. Don't bother convincing me I'm wrong. I'm content with this belief. And there are some beliefs that should be unquestioned, such as the Precy are bad. Yeah, uh, so Kat tries to find out who Ime is, and uh, she responds by saying that she's no one important. And Kat takes a leap and just says, villain, then. Now, first of all, Kat's assuming this person is named based on basically nothing, uh, and even says herself that she wasn't feeling name a name coming off of her. Um, but also, Kat, if you're assuming this person is named, I don't think vocalizing that you think they're a villain is necessary. <laughs> You're in praise. I guarantee you there isn't a hero hanging out on the 200th floor of the tower serving as malicious secretary, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, this is one of those, if the wine is poison enough to kill you, you weren't going to survive either way. If this is a hero on the, fl hero on the 200th floor... Well then, things are about to go down, and there's nothing yeah. you can do anyway. You're not you're not meeting with militia if this is a hero. It's there are probably there's probably a hero in the tower somewhere, bound in some kind of soul box or in prison or whatever. But just like wandering around up here, it's yeah, good guess, cat. <laughs> but uh, you know, assuming this person has a name is a bold stance. But uh, I guess it sort of makes sense. But. She doesn't have a name. She's just a spy mistress. Uh, or, I'm sorry. It's not that she has a name. She's just malicious equivalent to what Scribe is to Amadeus. Notice the first name basis again. Right. Catherine frowns and says, secretary? <laughs> Ime corrects, spy mistress. Let's not pretend that Scribe doesn't run one of the largest information networks on the continent. To which Catherine replies, I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to admit that out loud. Which is explicitly admitting it out loud. Uh, but yeah, this is the, <laughs> this is the moment that I was talking about. Uh, she directly compares herself in role and also in scope to Gribe, which is, I mean, that's a powerful move when you meet somebody to say, yeah, I'm basically Scribe, but without the name. That's a, uh, wow. So saying without the name sounds disempowering. Ime is, I think we had someone else on the list. Cordelia Hassenbach is relatively unique in her power, her position, and her namelessness. We put someone else on the list a few episodes back. Do you recall whom? And was it Ime? But I don't see why she would have come up. Uh, unnamed, powerful people? Yeah. Juniper? I mean, yeah, Juniper ends up the Marshal of Callow, which is pretty big. Uh... We brought it up before. That's the thing. Yeah, we definitely did. And I don't think it was a drow or anything where they no, have an alternate form. Yeah, that that wouldn't. It's not a drow or a dwarf or an elf or one of the or a rattling or one of the titans. Yeah, uh, was it one of the? It wasn't Klaus, was it? No, he doesn't have the no. political weight. Was it? He's it, a big deal, but that's because of his lowercase role. He's good. He is a good worker at his thing. That's not special. Right. So the there's a couple people who are very important without having a name. Ime, Cordelia, uh I'm I mean we can think of like uh Vivian between names, I guess, but she has a story even without a formal name. She's still like 
has the story weight of a name. And if between namedness qualifies, Catherine's there a lot, Black's there. Fair, yeah, 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 that's true. Uh, I don't know. Ime and Cordelia are kind of in a league of their own, and Ime's not even in the same category <laughs> as Cordelia, but she's, you know, she's in that league at least. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't think of anybody else. I don't know who else we would have talked about. Juniper, Juniper comes closest, I think, outside of those two. Just, or Juniper yeah. and maybe like Grem and. Uh, oh, but Grem has a name thread there that yeah. isn't refused but unpursued. Basically, as far as like for the story purposes, like for uh, for us the readers, yeah. it's Cordelia, Ime, and uh, Juniper. With Juniper and Cordelia being more important within the setting, I mean, you could probably put in the various marshals of the of Preis and. Uh, mm-hmm. Albert and you know things like that, and Ime, which we find out means patience in Mthethwa. It's not her real name. We find out her real name eventually, according to the wiki. I had forgotten. I admit, but I also forgot that we have patience. That's so cool. Uh, that's now you got another word. We've got Ime and Uchafe, but don't say that one because it's apparently a racial slur. Oops. And yeah, but it means filth. Which is still useful for a dictionary. E.E. is basically the next Tolkien. Huh. Possibly the perfected Tolkien. She introduces herself with her false name, and Catherine introduces herself with her name. Notice the lack of reverberation there. Yeah, uh, and Ime kind of makes a point of this. She says most, uh, after she comments on it, she says, Most individuals with a role introduce themselves by their name. And then uh, goes on to say, I wonder if that dissociation is related to your origins. And sure, that makes sense. That's probably the case. Uh, but most people with a role, barring big world-ending events, like you know what we see at the end of this story, uh, probably don't introduce themselves much at all. Uh, a lot of times people just sort of like know if somebody is named by who, like what they're doing. And you can, there's like a, I don't know, People are able to guess the name, or you're introduced by other people, or preceded by rumors. I just, I, I don't see a frequent occurrence of, you know, uh, Tariq walking up and, hey, I'm the Great Pilgrim. How you do? You know, it's not a, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as a common occurrence for, for names to need to, or for roles, for named to need to formally introduce themselves. I can imagine some, just. Really, this could have been an email-style meetings at the beginnings of the Truths and Terms, though. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm the wretched conniver, and my pronouns are he, him, they, them, and uh, I'm a villain. Oh, and and the one thing I want out of this crusade is n- not to have everyone die. Thank you. I like this guy. Yeah. I mean, the wretched conniver, is that what I said? Yes. The wretched conniver is one of the better named of the continent, if you ask me. Uh, we get a little bit more information about Kat's name, about Squire here. Uh, Ime lets us know that... Um, We've speculated before. We have, yeah. But uh, Ime lets us know that Squire is, quote, a largely pricey name. Um, and even says that for a girl born in lore to become the Squire is unprecedented. Uh, that's actually very interesting that 
squire isn't a general name, but specifically a pricey one, uh, which we have talked about the implications of that a few different places. Um, but in particular, I'm thinking like, okay, so does that mean the white knight doesn't get an equivalent to uh, to having the uh, a squire to counteract the black knight's power? Because we've talked about how rivals are often empowered specifically to deal with their opposite and you know you expect white... there to be a mirror knight so to speak <laughs> okay sure yeah uh but it also i guess a for a uh, uh for heroes they deal in bands of five and having two people who are you know similar it's the squire and also the bigger stronger better squire maybe messes with the balance there a little bit but i don't know it's it's that's interesting but also it makes arthur more directly connected to cat obviously he's so closely tied to her story like we'll we'll talk about that a lot when he shows up and cat talks about that a lot everybody does um, but this adds another layer to that that Ime says in many ways you are setting the standard for any who would follow in your path um and to see a squire form after cat is no longer squire in callow of another callow and in you know he has to forge his own path behind Catherine's precedent. Uh, it just it adds a new layer to his story. That's very interesting. I just want to no, absolutely. And one of the things that might influence Squire towards Prace, not exclusively. She does say largely Pracey, but it may be the nature of the hero's journey. And I'm not going to try to Ruther Campbell again because. We were right to drop it. I know I'm the one who introduced it, but we were right to drop him just because sure. we don't need that. Yeah. But the hero's journey is a valuable concept, even if the most famous version is his. A lot of heroic journeys are uh, are about finding one's own way. There are, and I realize the map between our stories and Pelernian stories aren't one-to-one, but they're one-to-some. The hero often has to deal with the death of the mentor too early, or they rediscover the lost art of whatever, or they are awoken by tragedy and go off and train under a sage rather than apprenticing themselves, rather than besquiring themselves, squirreling themselves to someone. If we look at uh, Hano, he doesn't train under the previous white knight. He hangs out with some giants for a while and accesses a well of memories. Yeah, I think he's a poor example because he explicitly does learn from all the previous white knights in a way. But yes. But even there, learning from rather than sure. apprenticing to. Yeah, that's fair. I, and you know, apprentice is a different thing, but what's a squire but a knight apprentice? Oh, yeah. And. All medievalists out there who know better than me and know the specifics of why they're not just apprentices, please let me know. Medieval stuff is awesome, and I really only got access to it in a uh, middle-high German course I took, which was a blast. Also, you know, it very well could be that part of the issue here is Tariq just completely skews how heroes in Colonia function. Like, he's that big of a deal. Uh, that prolific, especially in, in the West, right? That that prolific in his mentorship that uh, he's always showing up and doing some teaching, doing some guiding, and then disappearing into the fire or 
I don't know how he disappears. He disappears. And, you know, he's got a, a baby to kill somewhere. Just a cloud of dust and feathers from the pillow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he, you can always tell if it's the Grey Pilgrim rather than just a rando because he's got a, a pillow hanging from his belt at all times. That's awful. Thank you for that image. <laughs> Grey with the dust of the trail, of course. But Oh, no, it's a grimy pillow. <laughs> Insult injury. <laughs> oh man! Uh, so they let Catherine into the Dread Empress. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do uh, uh, with a little insult on the way in about how Cat doesn't know proper essays. Uh, they're specifically Cat doesn't, doesn't know how to write proper essays. Uh, specifically, Ime insults one of the essays Cat wrote while she was at the orphanage, uh, which is just absolutely hilarious that the spy mistress of the dread em- of the dread empire is grabbing some homework from an orphanage and, you know, taking a quick look before the said orphan arrives. And <laughs> she has specifics to insult her with. It's just great. She is a sassy woman. She is, uh, everybody gets together. Uh, the three people here, we have militia, we have cat, we have Ime. Um, and Kat doesn't really know what's going on exactly, so she's very formal, and Militia says, ah, don't, don't worry about it, uh, it's a private audience, and, uh, <laughs> Ime, of course, being Militia's one calamity, more or less, steps in to say, technically, this is a session of the Imperial Council. Two members out of the five is the necessary quorum. It's, first of all, kind of fun that Anytime Ime and uh, Militia are talking, it's uh, an official session of the Imperial Council. And second, having somebody's second-in-command or lieutenant role be a spy master of sorts, a spy mistress, spy master, who's very sassy and snarky. Kind of a trope that EE adores, huh? Between Ime, Hakram, and uh, Eudokia where we we see a handful of those throughout the series. The ruts worn into creation are ancient in story. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Two out of five is a quorum. We've got Dread Empress Militia. We've got Ime. Great. There are three more. Who would be on this council? I have near certainty that Black would qualify. Absolutely. It's got to be Black. And then, other than that, the pricey names of relevance are rather... Let's be honest. Other than that, we have the calamities to go through. I don't think scribe no would occupy it. No, scribe is a a sub name, really. Uh, we've got captain, but I think captain by her nature or by its nature, I guess, because it's a name, probably is under the Black Knight, who is probably traditionally martial and wouldn't be up there. And anyway, why would you have two military names right in there? Possibly there's a representative of the high lords and ladies or what have you, but it would be fought over openly in the story yep. if that were the case. Yep. Warlock. You got to have you got to have the magic representation. Sure. It, it feels good. But other than that, I don't necessarily think this is the right answer, but could the fifth spot on the Imperial Council because of ancient and unchanging laws be chancellor even though it is illegal sort of an empty seat yeah 
It feels maybe that feels like listeners may not realize this, but I sometimes take a less than perfectly rosy view of absolutist governments. However, it feels like an inefficiency possible in the system. Yeah, I mean, Dread Empress and Black, I think, are the two guarantees no matter what. I, I don't I don't think there's any way around those two. I think Ime being on here instantly means that it doesn't have to be named across the board. So it doesn't... I, I think if there were a chancellor, the chancellor would be involved. Uh, whether that means it's an empty seat now or whether Ime is fulfilling that position right now, you know, she's the fifth seat right now, uh, is hard to say, but... Warlock being on it would make sense if it weren't for the fact that Warlock isn't a government person. Like, that's not where his interests are. Uh, True. And I, I understand that, like, uh, it could, he could be on the council, just never show up. Sure. But that just, it doesn't strike me as something that Black or Militia would do. It just seems like, why would you have somebody on the council who isn't going to serve unless it's because they they have to have a council for legal reasons and if it's made up of people five you know if two of the people will never be there then it's basically black and militia doing everything but oh eh. but it is right i don't know i yeah i don't know that we get more information on who the other three we know black is one of the other two are for sure but whether there's an empty seat or what the what the deal is there regardless at this official meeting of the imperial council you got Three women of, you know, admittedly different tiers of hotness. By different tiers, I mean Militia's one of them, so. Right. <laughs> Militia's one of them, and Ubla isn't in the room. The only person who I think we hear might be in the same tier as Militia. But Militia is magically hot, it seems. Except, you know, Catherine tells us she was not, however, as attention-grabbing as she'd been in court. Which makes sense. Uh... When Kat notices this, you know, just a side note here, she says that her fingers tightened imperceptibly. Not going to count it as a fingers clench, but she thinks about it. She considers it. Uh, And we get a a claim by Kat that it's name shenanigans, which, of course, it is. She's she's got a name that's about ruling Prace, about being the highest seat in the Pracey court. Of course, she's got, if not an aspect, then at least some part of the name that gives her more presence in a an official capacity than when she's doing these side meetings or, you know, or gives her more presence whenever she needs it. Sure. Catherine, Catherine thinks so highly of herself for guessing. And she says, name shenanigans. I'd put my hand to flame on it. Whoa, wait a minute. Pause, pause everything. Here is a piece of Callowin or Kalernian or maybe local lore. I don't know culture element i'd put my hand to flame on it there either is or was some cultural tradition of i don't know what would you call that igneo divination igneomancy (laughs) sure pyromancy that feels better pyrodivination it determining the truth by fire trial by fire that exists or existed or is at least a concept. Cool. That's all. Yeah. Always, I mean, and it's definitely a Callowin thing if Kat's got it. Uh, so Definitely yeah. at least Callowin. At least Callowin, yes. That's fair. Could be elsewhere. I'm sure praise is a little more dramatic than just putting your hand over a hot thing, though. I would stake my own daughter through the heart. Not to prove anything. Just, I would do it. 
Well, it is Tuesday. <laughs> and you know, we do it on Tuesdays in Maja. Exactly. Or Majwa? Um, no, no, that's when we take our sons through the heart. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, when Cat and uh, when Cat is introduced to Militia here, not for the first time, of course, but for the purpose of this meeting, uh, one of the first things Cat, one of the first things that the Empress notices and comments on is Cat's directness uh, and her, hmm, and the fact that she's not impressed by being in the empress's presence directly um, and she compares this to how black handles himself and offers a, a kind of a prescient uh, comment on the on the situation when uh militia says she might as well be his daughter obviously we've got a lot going on before that truly becomes the the fact of the matter but still pretty Maybe the second time something like that has come up already, uh, we get you know some foreshadowing there with this, and uh, at one point, I early on, Cat wonders if she's you know Black's abandoned daughter from way back when, or whatever. So you know we get a, a couple a couple bits of foreshadowing for how their relationship develops, and you know it's fun to see Militia getting in on that. You gotta appreciate also that she has the awareness of the trope because again, in all likelihood, given the nature of the world. Catherine would be his daughter. It's just that she oh, isn't sure. yet. So it is or was recently Majo or Majwa. And so we've got to take some child through the heart, canonically, by the text we just read, right? Of course. Continuing to not add or remove anything from the text, but just read from it directly, I'd like to propose that we remove something from the text. Great. Catherine, in response, says, excuse me? And Militia waves a hand lazily. There's nobility in the Empire that would cheerfully murder their firstborn for the opportunity to discuss the weather with me. And there were nine extra words in that sentence. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you're right. For those of you listening and not counting the words, there is a reverse button on most podcast apps. Yep, good luck. So, Catherine is possibly Black's daughter, but also really set up as a successor to him. She is a squire to a knight, and we all know what becomes of squires. They become warden over all named in Clernia? Traditionally. Right. Uh, <laughs> but a, a good portion of the discussion, yeah, is about that. Uh, Militia and Ime trying to get a little bit of a better read on Kat, and uh, you know, there's definitely some manipulation going on here trying to get Kat in on some information she may not have thought about so far. Um, but we get uh, a, a little tidbit as part of this where um, where Militia says, Amadeus is, without a doubt, the most talented example of his name to grace Prace in a dozen generations. Which sounds great. That's a long time, and he's easily the best in that long of a But on the flip side, we also know that he's the longest-serving Black Knight in ever maybe or at least in a very long time um and so most of them aren't lasting 40 years or whatever it is like he is and i have to say black's ability to stand out here his his skill set setting him apart from only the most recent dozen black knights i would have expected her to say something like to grace price in uh, you know a millennium or since since the since triumphant's black knight or something like that i'm sure triumphant ain't the black knight's heart in front of her yeah good call so i, I don't know it's it seems like that is a 
pretty small time frame for him to be assuredly the best, since historically speaking, Price has not had particularly effective leaders. I mean, they that's the the thing that's talked about recently that yeah, Price has historically had awful leadership, which is why Triumphant is such a big deal that she stands so far above everybody else. And yet potentially as recently as thirteen Black Knights ago, there was somebody comparable to Black. I don't know. Maybe I just like Black too much, and I think he should be the best ever and be my special boy. He's he's just my special boy, I guess, is what I'm saying. The only reasonable thing here, I think, is that perhaps 12 or so generations ago, because I think she's speaking loosely. Oh, sure. Well, I think she's very calculatedly and deliberately and carefully speaking acceptably loosely. But maybe 12-ish generations ago, there was a Black Knight who was simply an extremely effective and probably short-lived, but terror, who got a rebellion in line and cowed the orcs who were coming down and did this and that and, you know, was a great and successful blade in a way that Black never will be. And so there's there's a wrinkle possible if you want to debate it. Sure, that's fair. Best is... Best is pretend. There's no such thing as the best, other than Cordelia Hassenbach. And Amadeus, my special boy. And Hockram, my actual special boy. And Robert. Your special son. Dear, dear, darling child. (laughs) I wonder how much of a family I'll acquire by the end of the series. I have a son. I have a mommy. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. So, they chat for a while. And, oh, apparently Black is not going to be able to be the Black Knight forever. Militia sighs that part of it is our fault, and Ime mildly contributes. He's been the hatchet man for this regime since the very beginning, and the cost is starting to show. And Catherine writes, recounts, tells us, again, it, it's it's unclear the yeah. manner in which the story is conveyed. Sure. E.E. writes in the voice of Catherine, <laughs> I'd almost forgotten she was there. Now, that is something. If, yeah, all focus on militia, sure, whatever. But just the way she imitates Scribe in that. Yeah, militia's presence helps immensely. I, I, I'm not trying to say Ime is actually magical. But, hey, parallel. She's in- incredibly good at her job, being a spy mistress. And so is Scribe. Scribe just has creation sort of leaning in to make her even better at her job. Ime doesn't, and is still impressive you know there's a there's a limits to how good a mortal can be at something and Ime is probably at that limit for career scribe just gets to scoop beyond that a little bit with some i was gonna say supernatural but i still don't know that i like to call names supernatural given how they work with some extra natural help there's a really nifty misunderestimation here and i i total aside but you know me. I recall the early 2000s. In the United States of America, there was a... So George W. Bush is not renowned for his speech-giving abilities. Uh-huh. And he's no longer as reviled for his war crimes universally, which is a mistake, but hey. Well, he gives candy to kids sometimes, so... Sure. But he used the word misunderestimate, and... Everyone pounced on it because, sure, let's critique someone on the way they speak rather than, again, the war crimes. I recall 
my dear mother having been given a magnet with that on it because <laughs> haha let us mock sure. the war criminal for his speech but i'm a firm believer in descriptive rather than prescriptive linguistics and words exist language only exists as it is used and as it communicates and misunderestimate is a spectacular word and it is justified and now if you ever need to find me defending george w bush uh again i'm calling him a war criminal so i'm not but he had a good word but we see a very cool misunderstanding here from the George W. Bush of the Guide universe, Dread Embers Militia. I'm sorry. Whoa. <laughs> but we get a really cool misunderstanding here. Catherine's trying to grapple with, oh, wow, I'm the squire tonight. That means I'm supposed to replace him? What? Which actually fair implications of things in the long term are not something she's yet learned how to deal with. But then she realizes, after clenching her fingers and unclenching them... Adding that to the count. Then that means Eris is another possible successor. And Ime snickers. Sweet Aquia's designs are a little grander than that, I'm afraid. And the Empress chides her, because ambition is a good thing in a young girl. Yet I fear her aspirations will be frustrated. The Age of Wonders is over, Catherine. The levels of, I'm sorry, I like to use a variety of words, but the levels of misunderstanding here. She fears her aspirations will be frustrated. Well, yeah, I get that Price welcomes challenges even because iron sharpens iron, blah, blah, blah. But the damage Aquia's actions do, maybe this isn't something to fear will be frustrated. But also the Age of Wonders is over. So, of course, she can't possibly succeed. But the herald of that end stands before you, and as it is not yet ended, there are the death rattles yet to fear. Kairos still has to make his last stand. The glory of crazy abomination must descend upon the land of the dead king. The dead king must descend verminously upon the lands. It, the, the wonders have yet to cease. And that is your downfall, Militia. Yeah, saying the wonder, the Age of Wonders is over while Kairos is alive. I, I like he epitomizes the Age of Wonders in like just such a good way. Oh, man, can we skip ahead a few hundred chapters and just just do Kairos for a while? I miss him. I love him so much, and I would like to note the Yonder chapters are basically as far as we are. So we don't know where things are going to end up. But I would like, in a rewrite, my hope, a hope, is that the Age of Wonders, the the theme of it, the steady motif of the last days of the Age of Wonders are a bit more heavily pressed as we go forward. Because it is a central theme, but I feel it vanishes a lot. And it's allowed to. But I enjoy it. Huh. I I think we'll have to discuss that more as we get into specifically Kairos and also Precy's last ride of floating towers, because I think I disagree with you on how present it is and how satisfying the that arc is. I, I think it's great. So we'll I argue have... not its presence. I argue it's stress. Hmm. It's more shown than told and right 
I would appreciate more reminder. Interesting. We'll have to, yeah, we'll have to keep talking about that because it, it's going to come up a lot, I'm sure. Because, like I said, I I don't feel that that's necessary. So I, I'm really curious to be able to tease out the specifics about why we fall in the positions we do. Absolutely. Uh, but speaking of this Age of Wonders, uh, we get a... <laughs> uh, Militia follows up the Age of Wonders of Over Catherine uh, with the days where a single mad woman with a flying fortress could cow a continent are long gone. And... She's right. Now it takes a single madman with, you know, several crabs to cow an entire continent. Uh, saying these are, it's long gone, really is lacking in foresight and militia. It, like, shockingly lacking in foresight for militia. Uh, clearly, the Dead King is not on her radar as, like, a real threat yet, uh, because... Because she hasn't made him one yet. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely he. You know, I think Kairos epitomizes the Age of Wonder within this story, but the Dead King, as far as like uh, on uh, as far as scale goes, is more in line with that for sure, since he's a legitimate continental threat, and Kairos has stopped too early for that, and also is a little self sabotaging. Kairos is the last great gout, a geyser, a burst of flame, that last joyous breath of the Age of Wonders, the Dead King is the last vestige, and what a vestige he is. But, again, that is neither here but there. Militia asks Catherine what she wants. The same question she asked Amadeus before he helped her claim the tower. Yeah, it's a powerful question, and, uh, you know, Kat gives a pretty good answer by saying, that's a complicated question. Um, and, you know, that that doesn't go anywhere particularly yet. But while Kat's considering the answer, she has a thought that is a bold stance to take. Uh, she says, Hells, what could you... Or, Hells, what could you even say to the second most powerful woman on a continent asking what you wanted? Putting Militia as the second most powerful woman on the continent is probably accurate, but not for the reason Kat thinks. It's just such a wild claim to just come out of nowhere with no context and just sort of leave there on the page <laughs> and move on from at this stage in the story, you know? For clarity of understanding your point, which I agree with entirely, but why is it accurate and why isn't it for the reason Catherine thinks? Well, it's accurate because Bard. And obviously... Bard is on nobody's radar at this point. Like, she's not even on Black's radar. And frankly, I don't even think she's on, like, the Grilgrim's radar yet, if I recall correctly. And he's he'd be the only one who might. Uh, and it's inaccurate because is she, I, I assume she's talking about Cordelia here. And It can only be Cordelia or Ranger. Right. And given that she's talking in a political context here, I have to, mm -hmm. I have to think she means Cordelia. Like, personally powerful... Yeah, probably Ranger, but if you're going personal power, like individual power, Ranger, the Saint of Swords. The uh, Dead King. Woman, though. Oh, fair. And so, like, Ranger, the Saint of Swords are the two that easily come to mind that could, that I would say are more personally powerful. Not even just direct conflict, but, like, the power they wield. But politically, uh, and Cordelia is a tough one because she's not nearly so despotic tyrannical in her actual legal power 
obviously she oh, two men in the community would disagree with you, but you're right. <laughs> and it's it's really just is she saying that because Proser is more powerful than Pracy than Prace in Cat's mind? I don't I don't know. It's it's just this claim begs so much more context than we're given, so many more details, so much more of Cat's thought process than we're given. No. How much does Catherine know with her education? We don't have the answer to this question. Mm-hmm. But how much does she know about the Prosperin situation? Because arguably, her entire world right now, and all of the struggles that matter in her world, are really the careful games between Militia and Hassenbach. And so this is, Callow is a proxy war. Well, no. Callow stands to become a proxy war battlefield as it actually does because of Catherine. Also, less of a proxy war and more just the battlefield. Yeah. (laughs) No, it it is proxy because ultimately Crusade doesn't go against Praise, just Callow, which Catherine has conveniently... Yeah, Everyone wins here. It's hard to call it a true proxy war because Proser does get directly involved. But yes. That's fair. I, I, I see what you're saying and I do agree. No, no, you see, just like in, and as is appropriate for a proxy war, Cordelia just arms, outfits, and sends off the... The Phantasms. I, I, I was going to say the Arlesites and... Sure, yeah, also true. <laughs> the Levantines, is that what they're called? Is that how they're, they're demonym? Do the Levantines get involved in the Crusade? Some of them they're do. They're two A1s in Prosser. They're the Arlesites and Arlesites. I'm going uh, to the map. Yeah. The Arlesites and Alamans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, someone from the continental north just starts giving weaponry to the continental south and has them go to war. It's an old story. No, I don't want Cordelia to be America. (laughs) That all said, Militia allows Catherine time. She doesn't demand an answer. But she says, this is praise, Catherine Foundling. Our ways are harsh, but they are not without graces. Power earned is yours to do with as you wish. Which is, of course, what is claimed, but uh, there, there's a lot more to it than, than what Militia says here, obviously. But, uh, you know, worth noting here, uh, Militia says that there are, there, she uses grace, plural, graces. Uh, so she must not buy into Cat's whole, or Cat's, she must not buy into Black's whole once in one grace motto for the legions that, that's just for the legions not for the important people up top it, you know praise has multiple graces in her mind she's from a different praise than the black knight frankly or she there, occupies a different praise yeah yeah that's that's fair she continues remember that when putting down the rebellion you set into motion sacrifices are meaningless if they do not lead to an outcome and cat says that her blood runs cold with this at the specifically at the line rebellion you set into motion and Kat is surprised that she, she knew she, how did it didn't matter and Kat is freaking out about this internally yeah Kat obviously she knows <laughs> like I, it the fact that she's surprised just tells us again how nascent Kat's political mind is and how how early on in her career she is that she she's surprised militia knowing something like that uh it wasn't exactly cat you didn't cover your your trail particularly well you told black what happened or at least gave him all the clues he needed to easily put it together and 
you're surprised that the Dread Empress also knows? Yeah, I mean, obviously Militia knows. But Militia is also able to use that situation then as a proof of her claim. Mm -hmm. Power earned is yours to do with as you wish. By the way, I know you're effectively a traitor, and you are in a place where I could kill you, and no one could or would object. So go have fun. Yeah, that's I mean that's true. You used your you had power, you used it to do this thing. Uh you better hope the consequences are you know, you better handle the consequences yourself because at this point it's becoming an empire problem and yeah, that's that's true. That's a good uh a good point. Nice illustration there. So she is by implication dismissed. She mm -hmm. follows the spy mistress out and they walk for a bit, and then Ime suddenly says your legion will pass through Summerholm. Catherine replies, it's the only land route, yes. And Ime gives us everything. <laughs> yeah. She says, Warlock will be there. So will his son. And we knew this was coming. We've read this before. But it's still very exciting to know that we're getting close. That, that he's on his way into the story and into our hearts. I'm so excited for, for Zeez to be back. My darling, my beloved, maybe my son? We will see. Speaking of sons, though, I could make a comment on how interesting it is that in a world with such overall openly and acceptedly queer everything, Catherine says his son, I thought he, as though adoption by same-sex couples isn't, you know, default considered the norm. Or a norm, at least. I don't, I don't know what magics are around, and I hope there are many. But I'm not going to focus on that. Instead, let's focus on the main part of the reply, which is, Married an incubus? She smiled. Yes, the rumors are true. Very well-behaved creature for a personification of lust. They adopted. And all I gotta say is Warlock is goals. He is living <laughs> his best life. And I just love that... Possibly the only healthy, hmm, yeah, quite possibly the only healthy marriage we see in the entire story is an evil warlock and his sex demon husband who are devoted and loving parents and caring and mutually supportive, independently interdependent partners. Like, this is the one healthy family on the continent. Now, I think that's beautiful. I think there are two healthy marriages that we see. I when you were when you were hesitating, I thought you were going to say relationship, and we know that's not true. We see plenty of healthy relationships, and by plenty, I mean like three. But healthy marriages, yes. Uh, the most powerful mage, maybe the second most powerful mage in Colernia, possibly, uh, and an incubus, sure. But you're really gonna you're really gonna forget about uh, Rosin and Aquiline. There's that's that's a beautiful marriage. You're forgetting something though. Okay. They're Levantine. And I mean, you might not always know exactly why something's wrong with them, but you know that something is. <laughs> no, that's just with them personally. The relationship is perfect. Honestly though. But they're not married yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they don't, Maybe they don't actually get married until literally the epilogue, I think. Healthy marriages in the guide function just like names. You can't acquire one until the last one dies. Oh my gosh. Brutal. Uh, just something small to note here. Uh, small. Well, I mean, it's a, kind of a, 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 a small line, but it's pretty cool. Uh, 
uh, Kat mentions, is talking about the calamities with Ime, and Ime says, you'll have seen all the calamities save Ranger after that. Not many people can claim the same. And Kat is taken aback because she says that she's never met Assassin either. <laughs> and Ime's response is a pitying, it would be a mistake to think that means Assassin has never met you. Such a powerful line. It's it's just it's so good to to have a spy mistress saying something like that with the pitying look being thrown your way at the same time. It's great. For any who joined the guide, the community, the world, after really after it finished, but after a very late point, the community was full of speculation about who Assassin might be. There was confirmation from above that he had been present at at least some point in the story. Who could it be? It it was a discussion. People were excited. And on this reread here, the hints that are laid in this chapter are so blatant uh, and just so cool to see them because there's this, uh, watch out, you know, assassin, he's dangerous and uh, you haven't met him. Oh, uh, you know, and Kat says something about, I, was, I thought I was going to be, I thought I was running out of nightmare material. And Ime instantly transitions to a very direct warning about Scribe, uh, saying that he is the most dangerous of the Black Knight's crew of the Calamities. Uh, you know, it's it's not actually Ranger, it's not Warlock, it's Scribe. There's, it's, that alone is a hint, but then it follows up with Ime in a whisper saying, do not ever let her believe that you are a threat to him. If she does, she won't call down Hellfire or come swinging a sword. One night, you will simply disappear, and no body will ever be found. We don't get the... Obviously, this isn't a hint as to exactly what Assassin is, but the association between the two is basically just laid out on the page on a reread here, and so that's it's very cool. This is one of the joys of a reread, is catching things like that. But, you know, seeing the hint this early is awesome. I think that's roughly what I was saying. Fantastic. Catherine finds Ime weirdly helpful here, because she is. She tells us that Assassin is Scribe, even if we don't know that until after reading the book. Right. But Catherine questions, why are you being so helpful? That's not the text. I'm just reading between the lines. Right. And Ime replies, I owe your teacher a debt. He chose mercy once when he had every right to do otherwise. I've made a habit of settling that score whenever I can. I'm not sure whether this directly impacts Catherine's actions, if she learns from this moment particularly. But she definitely learns and uses the valuable skill of life debt, be it her Lord of Silent Steps or her Hanged Men. It's a it's a powerful tool, but it's also, I think Kat just sort of has a merciful streak that she stomps down most of the time in favor of pure pragmatism, but, uh, you know, it can be pragmatic to be merciful, so yeah. There's, uh, there's called a pragmatic guide to mercy. <laughs> That's the sequel. Or the prequel, maybe? Hmm. We should discuss both the sequel and the prequel after this podcast. Yeah, sure. We'll dive right in. We but, can start now. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot because we are out of time for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata as we discuss... Relaxation. Execution. And justification. Wade in their blood.
Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Eretta is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Eretta's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Non sequitur wink effect was cartoon underscore wink underscore magic underscore sparkle by Pixabay. Music for the epigraph was Razor's Edge by Gvidan, which was used entirely because of the name and also because it sounds cool. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of Pixabay.com. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash P-G-T-E-E. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a P-G-T-E-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 3, Cost. <laughs>